Welcome to Remainders, everybody. We're back after about a two-month hiatus. It's my first time seeing Pat. I could tell that the beard has not gotten any shorter in that time span. And I'm excited today to talk to you. It's been, like I said, it's been two months. How have you been? What have you been up to? Welcome back, Darren. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm doing great. Uh, what have I been doing? I've been enjoying the end of summer with plenty of music and movies, uh, which I guess is unsurprising given uh, our relationship and interests. Um, yeah, I was uh, checking out uh, Riot Fest, uh, which was a fantastic time. Uh, got a couple other uh, small concerts, a couple other big concerts with it too, but uh, just been going strong with that. And uh, yeah, been enjoying it. How about you? Uh, how about some uh, updates on that uh, project I've been wanting to hear about? Yeah, all, all's good. Yeah, I've been, I'm actually working out here, as Pat's saying, uh, I'm working out here producing a, uh, a documentary right now. And um, maybe it's a little too early to talk too much about it, but uh, we're, we're in post right now on that and getting further along. But that's why we've been uh, kind of having to to put remainders a little bit on the back burner because every every time I think we're going to do it, I'm like, God, hold on. There's like, you know, I got to put out some kind of a fire. And that's just the nature of that beast. You kind of have to be on call 24 seven. So uh, it's been awesome. I'm kind of glad to be in something and work with something that I'm not. Uh, it's a little bit unfamiliar territory, but yet familiar uh, because I love movies and all those things. But I've been doing that. And then I've been also trying to enjoy the rest of my summer. I went and saw Ghostbusters at Cinespia, which was awesome. And um, yeah, Jason Reitman uh, did the uh, intro to the film. Oh, right on. Nice. And it was cool. He gave a little bit of a um, a nice little uh, talk about his father beforehand. And that was mm. really nice, obviously, with him passing away this year right before or I think right after the Ghostbusters, you know, the new Ghostbusters Afterlife came out, which, by the way, I'm a fan of. Uh, I don't know if you'd seen it yet, but I really liked it. That's all right. I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but yeah, so there's a screening of Ghostbusters coming up here in Chicago at the Roosevelt Auditorium, I think, and it's got a full orchestra. Uh, with it so I was uh, thinking about going that I think I do have plans that night so I'm probably not going to attend it but uh, that's definitely a good opportunity if you're here in Chicago uh, the Roosevelt Auditorium is beautiful and it has been a kind of like a more popular thing kind of a lot of the throwback movies with like a full orchestra um, I know Lord of the Rings is a popular one with that which I've always wanted to attend but I have never gotten a chance to so yeah I would love that too so wait, I want to hear your thoughts on the new Ghostbusters. Uh, that's a that's that was a controversial uh, movie for a lot of people. I don't think it was controversial for myself. It was, it was all right. It was just very, it was pure nostalgia, which either people love or seem to really bothers a lot of other people for whatever reason. I don't know. I mean, I think you need to hear about the old cast members and you know what they're up to. It's not that the all female cast version wasn't good. I mean, I enjoyed that for what it was, but it needed like it's Ghostbusters. Everybody wants to hear about the original cast, you know. And oh, yeah. I think that's yeah. what that's what they gave them. You know, they gave them everybody where what what had been up to. What what you know. I think it was a strong script. I think it was cool. Um, the ending was a little like forced. Like, okay, well, we got to show this character, so let's just throw them in here. But I still thought it was great. Uh, the CGI I, like, I think we could say it. so the CGI Vinkman. yeah <laughs> yeah and, and and it was Egon, still, I'm sorry yeah yeah Vankman was there in the flesh which was uh, yeah. something that I don't think a lot of people expected but at the end of the day with the you know I'm a fan of Ghostbusters I always will be and so I like what they did with it um I like the new kind of like the new school like um 
way of like these kids kind of figuring it all out and kind of like unraveling right. the mystery and that was cool yeah. though like I like a new that's the new twist right but I also saw a movie that I didn't like very much um which I thought had such great potential uh and I was excited about it but I saw Don't Worry Darling in the theater mm. uh, the Chinese theater over here in LA and um so I, I imagine having worked on, on some film sets recently that all the people that worked on like the art direction of that film, because it looks so beautiful. It's like, bravo, cheers to all those folks who did that because it looks so good. It's right up my alley as far as like, you know, 1950s, like mid-century and it's a shot, um, looks like at Palm Springs and it's kind of just perfect, right? but the the film itself just didn't hold up story-wise um a lot of holes are very confusing at times the acting i thought in my opinion um could have been a little maybe that was a product of the fact that like the movie wasn't super solid but i thought some of the acting was a little poor at times um and i was uh wondering if you saw that did you see don't worry darling what were your thoughts I have not seen it. Um, I've been, I was mildly interested in checking it out. Uh, what was Olivia Wilde's uh, like breakout movie with uh, like Beanie Feldstein? Um, what was it called? Booksmart. I liked Booksmart. It was pretty good. Uh, it, was, it was kind of like tagged as like the, the, the girl version of Superbad, um, kind mm. of just given that vibe. I think that was her first movie. So, I mean, I was mildly interested in checking it out uh to be honest i get this is why i don't pay attention to celebrity culture i get so uh turned off of uh stuff when i hear more about like um personal controversies which is that movie was just i mean you heard more about all the bullshit with olivia wilde and being on set with harry styles and all the other shit that they apparently she didn't get along with Florence pew which again all this stuff i don't care about but it's like yeah well you get inundated you know, the, with it on social media and so like it just kind of turns me off of the whole thing so i think the thing about all of that is that it's just like really good marketing it's not unlike you know the way that they used to spin stories back in the day i think it's like right. the more people have you know fodder to like you know, put on their TikToks or their Instagrams or talk about like controversies. And then it just spreads like wildfire, like some sort of bubonic plague. And then everybody is like, well, I'm going to go see the movie to see if any of that translates onto the screen. And it, lo and behold, it, you know, kills the box office on opening uh, weekend. So, you know, I think we found also in that Johnny Depp trial, if anything came out of that uh, of use for the public to understand is that in that trial, they talked a lot about the way that they gauge stars these days and how popular yeah. they are in the social realm and i mean obviously it makes sense you know that they're, they're wanting to put somebody on the screen where people are going to go and see so uh it's just a new way of of, of hollywood doing that and I, I really think a lot of those stories were spun and i think a lot of people fell for it yeah we have we have people who are uh, able to be marketed well in Hollywood rather than movie stars anymore. We don't really have movie stars. We just have kind of uh, interchangeable actors who get uh, who get their shot based on how well they can be marketed. Yeah, which is, yeah. Which is wild. Uh, Jenny Depp is one of the uh, last movie stars, even though he's barely a movie star anymore now. Again, his uh, his uh, personal controversies get more attention than anything he's acting in. So. I, but, I know, but is uh, it? I, mean, did, I mean, we have yet to see like what a box office might be after the trial with Johnny Depp. You know, we have yet to see like what a big like 
movie that he carries what it would do after that so I, I think it remains to be seen with uh what the public really thinks of that you know after the trial it don't do don't worry darling did that do well in the box office i think it yeah i think did pretty well. i think it did yeah, yeah i think it yeah. did did really well and again i i can't imagine there's a lot of people leaving that 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 movie thinking wow that was the best movie i've ever seen because it again it wasn't but um and i but i wanted it to be and i and i, I saw it and supported it and think it's cool i, I like olivia wilde she's cool I mean, I love Florence Pugh and Chris Pine. Uh, both of them, I think, are fucking great. Um, Chris Pine actually has a movie that is on my list for an upcoming episode. Um, but maybe you could talk about that later. But I think the, both of them are both awesome. So, Yeah, Chris Pine, um, a, a miss for me in this. Um, he, I, I like him, too. I think he's fine. Uh, but he plays like a villain. You mean in this movie? Yeah, it kind of, okay. kind of plays like a villain sort of role and um, it falls really yeah. short. I, but again, I don't know what that is. I don't know if the movie just was like, it had too many holes and like the actors like didn't really have a leg to stand on or what. But um, yeah, I mean, that's my opinion. I'm sure yeah. if you're out there listening to me, you might say, Darren, you're an idiot. Uh, let us know. Tell us, you know. <laughs> but anyway, it's been a good, it's been a good, you know, year for pulling and seeing movies again, at least for me. I'm sure for you too. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I have not been watching much at home. I've been really uh, kind of busy with work and just kind of doing other things, but that's been kind of getting me going to the theater a little bit more, but again, not even that much. I just, I mean, this past weekend, I went to the Davis Theater here in Chicago for uh, The Massacre, which is from Terror in the Isles, which is this great uh, nonprofit, not a full nonprofit, but just a small collective of horror fans. Uh, and they put on a marathon every year amongst like other screenings and whatnot. But this was a 14 hour fest uh, yesterday at the Davis Theater. And so I got to check out a couple of classic movies, Child's Play 2, which is uh, arguably one of my favorites in the series, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original and Joe Dante's uh, Howling. So it was pretty, uh, it's pretty entertaining to go there among horror fans and uh, check those out. That's a long day. I mean, I did not go for all 14 hours, but uh, it was just those three movies I checked out. I usually reserve my energy for the Music Box of Horrors. Uh, that's their yearly 24-hour fest, which, I, again, I don't even really do all that, but uh, I try to stretch as many into that. And the lineup for that one this year, as usual, is looking pretty good. So, Awesome. Yeah, you know, I uh, did send you that link for the Jarmish question and answer. Uh, he's got a book coming mm. out. Had, did that's you right. buy it? Did you get tickets to that? No, I missed that. But what was Damn the date? What was it? Did I it think already it's happen? coming I up. I think it's coming okay. up at that music box. Um, I told my my nephew about it, and he bought two tickets to it. So let me know if you don't have a ticket. He might have an extra one. Was it at the Art Institute? No, dude. It's at the music box. Oh, it's at the music box. Oh, yeah, geez. and it's like a, it's like a question and answer. And uh, I mean, Jim Jarmusch is one of the greatest directors of all time, in my opinion. So you have to be yeah. there. <laughs> i'm pretty shocked i haven't heard of that outside of your uh recommendation right like the, the music box might not be just um advertising that maybe yet or or it's not it doesn't really have to oh, do with that, like seeing okay. a movie yeah it's he's like, with uh, uh jonathan ames yeah jonathan yeah. ames the writer um okay no that's coming up i'm definitely gonna check that out then november 5th so and if anybody's listening, the reason in here in chicago they can check it out too so yeah, I mean, the reason I, I told you about it is like, I don't know when the next time you're going to see Jim Jarmusch, like sit down and like pretty much just answer any question. And on all of his films, 
pretty much, especially Dead Man on the Criterion channel, he has this like question and answer like segment. It's like an hour long where it's just like he answers people's questions. And it's so enlightening and so cool that I just thought you'd really enjoy that. Um, plus, I pick up his book, you know, of course. I think he may have had, I don't know, maybe I'm confusing it. Did he have an event uh, conversation with uh, John Waters a couple years ago? Is that mm-hmm. ringing Possible. a bell? Yeah. Oh, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. So in, in terms of other things, I asked you about some books that uh, I should pick up. So I did I did pick up Finding Freedom on your recommendation and oh, right on. a bunch of other ones that I'll talk about in a while. And I liked what you said about this um, this book, you know, sometimes like when you need a like a, a, a reminder of how good your life is, you know, you can read a book like this of somebody who's been through some shit. Jarvis J. Masters certainly had been through some shit. I'm, uh, as you can see, not all the way through it yet, but uh, a very good book. And um, yeah, it's Finding Freedom, How Death Row Broke and Opened My Heart. Um, and I'm enjoying it very much. So if there's anybody out there that follows Patrick on social media, he's usually uh, repping the really good books to read. And I find lately that the best thing for me to do to find peace in my life is to read. So thanks for that recommendation. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Yeah. No, that, I'm a huge fan of that book. It, it's, it's, I mean, it's very concise. So for anybody uh, listening, just wants kind of a quick read, uh, highly recommended, but yeah, it's his memoir of um, uh, imprisonment, uh, basically went into prison at a young age for a, uh, for a violent crime. Um, and it's basically the story of him um, learning the practice of meditation through Buddhist teachings and, committing to a life of nonviolence and basically grappling with the fact that he may spend the rest of his life in prison and yet still finding uh, mental and, and, and uh, mental freedom uh, from within rather than focusing on the obviously very challenging external uh, uh, circumstances that he lives by. So no, it's great. I yeah. love that you're checking that out. You sent me some good quotes from that and it reminded me of uh, leafing through some of those pages because it's it's a, it's a goldmine of like uh, wisdom, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. and you're right. It's like, it's like an easier read. Um, and I'm kind of glad that I'm almost through with it because I'm going to take a break from the, the recommendations that you gave me to read Dracula because it's October 1st here. And oh, yeah. so that's going to be my next book that I can just read. I've actually never read the novelization of it. Uh, you know, I've only mm. seen the million times it's been on the screen. So I'm excited about that. And as you know, I'm excited. Criterion has put out like literally the coolest programming for the month of October that oh, yeah. has to do with all of the great movies, 80s horror, all vampire centric stuff. Um, Godzilla stuff you know like everything that you want to watch uh in the month of October so like I'm going to be busy this month <laughs> all good stuff uh no that's exciting where you're reading Dracula for the first time I was actually just thinking about that the other day because a book I just I'm reading right now it's in um kind of a memoir um first person like journal uh point of view uh and it was reminding me of Dracula because that's exactly kind of the the way that one's set up it's all told through like letters uh through the main characters um and it just unfolds in that way and it, that when i read that uh, i probably read that when i was like uh, 22 or 23 and that just that format always stuck with me it was like such a uh, a unique uh, way to tell uh, to tell a story of like a straight up novels through letters uh, like that so i was really excited about that but 
I mean, I was, I haven't read that one in a long time, but I reread Frankenstein a couple of years ago. Um, I read that last year as well. Oh, it's still good. Yeah, that, I mean, that still one good. I love, so. And I would just say, uh, to try to segue, if I may, into what we're going to be talking about today, I did binge watch the Dahmer um, Netflix series. Nice. And so the segue is that Nick Cave uh, had done the score for the Dahmer series. And what we're talking about today is Nick Cave and his screenwriting debut, which is the movie from 2005, The Proposition, which I had never seen before this last weekend when I watched it on Pat's recommendation to talk about today. But he is, and Pat is a huge fan of the movie and also of Nick Cave as well. So just to, 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 to break off that, you know, something that's relevant to Nick Cave uh, right now is that Dahmer series, which is playing on Netflix uh, at the moment. Oh yeah. Um... No, yeah, I'm like crazy huge fan of Nick Cave and his music. Um, I've been a fan of his. So that's what's uh, part of the reason why I chose this movie. I do love this movie, but this also was uh, a personal pick because this is how like how I got into Nick Cave. I saw this in theaters when it came out in 2006, I think it is. And uh, that was, I had, I had been familiar with Nick Cave's name. I knew like he was a musician, but I had never like owned any of his records or heard any uh, full records of his. And so checking out this movie, um, I loved it like um, immediately. And then just seeing that it was the screenplay by Nick Cave, uh, the music, which is one of my favorite parts of this movie. It's his and Warren Ellis's score. Uh, just everything about the writing and the music like struck me instantly, like one scene in the theater. So I immediately uh, went out and bought a couple records. I actually, I had seen the movie and then like the following weekend, I went to uh, Reggie's for a show uh, downtown. And this was back when Record Breakers was then the upstairs part of uh, Reggie's. Bought two Nick Cave records there, uh, Boatman's Call and Murder Ballads, still two of my favorite albums of his. And was uh, pretty much sold and being a huge Nick Cave fan ever since. And uh, yeah, so I'm definitely excited to hear your reaction to this movie because this is the first time I've been re I've revisited it for a few years now. And um, I mean, I had a blast watching it. Uh, it's a pretty intense movie. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to hear what you thought about it. Well, you know, the thing about this film for me is that like, obviously when you tell me about something, I'm kind of never sure what I'm going to get, you know? Like, but, like, like Bone Tomahawk, for instance, when you, when you told me about that, I was kind of like, okay, what am I getting into? And the whole movie was awesome, of course. And I know that you probably had recommended that movie to me because of Kurt Russell, but like that ended up being one of my like favorite films of uh, that year uh, i think that was 2015 but like i had hadn't seen it you know until uh, nice. last year or the two years ago when you recommended it and i was like damn i can't believe i missed this one it was so <laughs> brutal towards the end it just like it really made you wait for that um and so anyway it's it, that is like a western type of feel film and so is the proposition uh set in the australian kind of i wouldn't say the outback but it's like in a town uh an old western town in, in Australia. And the first thing that struck me about this film was, holy shit, there's a lot of flies in this film. And especially like the actors, like Guy yeah. Pierce, like he, he doesn't wince at all. None of them do. And it's almost kind of yeah. cool as an actor. Like I'm sure they had to train at how to like not let these flies bother them through the movie. Because if you see the film to everyone listening to us here, when you see the film, I mean, it's a, there's a shitload of flies. Like I don't, I don't even know like is that real like do you know like is that place just like a fly haven because it was like every scene was filled with these uh 
never ending plague of flies. I mean, from what I understand about Australia in general, it's, I mean, it's a fucking madhouse of uh, bugs and animals that are going to either annoy the shit out of you or potentially kill you. So that didn't, uh, <laughs> that, that didn't like surprise me. I mean, this is, and this is set in the 1880s um, and all these, every person in this movie is filthy, except for the, the few people running the show. Um, and so, yeah, the flies just kind of do uh, hover around and just add to the whole ambiance of it. And, but yeah, that's a good point in terms of like, you, like there are flies all over and yet you'd never see anybody like actually have to deal with or get annoyed with the flies. Uh, I was listening yeah, to the and- commentary and uh, there was a lot of uh, talk about how, how Ray Winstone, who plays Captain Stanley, and how he was having trouble as an actor dealing with the flies and, and, but nothing, none of that shows up like on screen with his character though. So obviously there was uh, an intense heat and obviously the resulting flies from that uh, during the shoot. Winstone, uh, great in Gangs of New York, right? Uh, I would say his most claim to fame for me is Gangs of New York. Uh, it's been a long time since that's probably my, uh least watched scorsese of his major ones gotcha. at least i need yeah, to rewatch that one that's he i mean for, I for mean, me he's like more he's french from the departed uh if 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 we, um if you're oh you're right you're you not, know what not seeing his name maybe i'm thinking of the departed instead of that but i, I do remember winstone i think as like uh okay i, I was know. gonna say i don't think yeah i don't think he's in guys uh gangs of new york um but he's definitely he's definitely french he he might be we can check it out but like he's definitely french French, he is is french and departed yeah which um which i rewatched earlier this year and that that one gets better every yeah that gets better every time maybe right all right sorry everybody listening to this uh you know the actors mixed up but you're right uh and he is awesome he's like oh you want a cranberry juice what is it your period (laughs) That I like your boss next. Departed. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So uh, I loved uh, all all of the the. I like Guy Pierce. I just want to say quickly. This is around the time I would think. Like I think 2001 was Memento, uh, Christopher Nolan's great film with Guy Pierce. And so this is like following uh, a couple years after, basically another Guy Pierce uh, gem. And uh, I man, he's a great actor. You know, he's so great. I was hearing somebody, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about uh, Memento and apparently Brad Pitt was originally going to be playing um, the main character in that uh, when Nolan was trying to get that off the ground. And I think Brad Pitt may even be a producer on that. I don't know. But um, I remember them saying uh, that his stardom would probably eventually overshadow the movie itself and so i think that's why they ended up going with like a lesser known uh actor guy pierce as a result and i for as much as i love brad pitt i I kind of agree with that like i think guy pierce is fucking perfect in memento i love that movie oh yeah totally but i could see brad pitt in that actually now that i think about it i'm actually a big brad pitt fan especially more so now speaking of brad pitt i mean yeah i think you and i are both really big fans of uh um jesse james the uh, the coward robert ford uh so uh, good that that's another nick cave scored film the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford with a full name 2007 brad pitt it's a tongue twister yeah I yes. love the score in that, by the way, and the cinematography in that film is like unparalleled. It's so beautiful. 
Yeah, so I was excited to hear that. I, uh, I know we haven't really talked about that movie too much, but um, yeah, I know I'm a huge fan of that. Um, I may have sent you like a, a clip of the score, but it sounds like you've uh, kind of dove into that. Nick Cave actually shows up at the end of that movie in the bar scene playing uh, a violin, uh, his little ah. cameo in that movie. So, um, but I also sent you um, Nick Cave and Brad Pitt go way back. Um, that movie Johnny Suede that Brad Pitt made in like 91. So this was like the same year as, um, um, wow, what's the road trip movie with the two women? Jeannie Davis and- Oh yeah, uh, Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise. So the same year as Thelma and Louise with Brad Pitt making his big debut in that one. He made this movie Johnny Suede, which I actually haven't seen, but he plays a character with his pompadour that looks like uh, Johnny Bravo which obviously I'm assuming this uh, has something uh, to do with each other. Um, and Nick Cave has a couple scenes with that in that movie with Brad Pitt. So they definitely go back uh, a long way in their working relationship. Yeah, and I think I sent you a link just recently that they're doing a uh, art show together, yeah. uh, which, yeah. is, which I thought was pretty cool. It's a pretty cool duo, you know. But Nick Cave in general... Um, seems like he's been busy and i think you told me something about his uh so like why this has he done any other screenplays other than this film like uh what what's what's his story yeah he well he did a screenplay with this director uh the director is john hillcoat uh john hillcoat also directed the movie the road the cormac uh, mccarthy adaptation with vigo mortensen which i rewatched a couple years ago and it definitely I liked it a much better the second time watching it uh, than I uh, originally saw it. I'm a huge fan of that novel, obviously, but um, the movie's great. Uh, well, so Nick Cave, he wrote a movie which I've only seen clips of, Ghosts of the Civil, Ghosts of the Civil Dead. Uh, it's from the 80s, um, set in prison. And like I said, it's the same director. But I think those are the only two scripts that he's uh, successfully um had produced so i've seen nick cave perform multiple times maybe like six or seven times and one of um the times i've seen him he um this was maybe a year or so before the pandemic started which is crazy to say now because that's it's um, we're pushing yeah three we're coming years, up right? we're coming up on three years of the fucking pandemic which is just blowing my mind to say right now but uh, so maybe like 2018 or 19 I saw him do like a solo show where it's just him and the piano and he's actually doing um, audience questions because uh, he's really kind of become uh, a pretty candid philosopher on life, death, uh, art and everything in between. And he told a story at that show about how he was hired to write the script uh, from I think Ridley Scott and um why am I forgetting the actor's name? Gladiator. Oh, um, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. They had him, uh, Dick Cave, write the script for Gladiator 2. Uh, and so he actually wrote that, submitted it, and uh, he was just telling it as a story. It was like, this is definitely not what we're looking for, because he turned it into like this whole biblical story of how uh, Russell Crowe's character like goes to hell and has to fight in purgatory all the gods. It's just, it's just he turned it into something that sounds awesome, but it was certainly not what the, they were looking to make at the time. So certainly not what the masses are looking to see yeah, after yeah. seeing such exactly. a sweeping epic like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's, I mean, he's been in and out of film. Um, I'm so he started making music in the '70s in Australia with the Birthday Party. 
uh, continued on with uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds to this day. And he's had um, Side Project Grinder Man, which I also love uh, in the meantime. But so he's always had music that I think is like cinematic in its storytelling and structure. So I think like his interest in evolvement into film has been pretty uh natural kind of yeah yeah i mean especially his scores though he's been doing scores for many years now like before uh this movie but um i mean like we talked about assassinated jesse james uh lawless this film um plenty of other good ones uh the road he did obviously uh, his music, like his styles, especially working with Warren Ellis, who has been his collaborator for decades, um, it's just, it, it works so well with the ambience of like films that are about life and mostly death. So, yeah. And I think that like, you know, again, segues into this film, um, like the whole idea of the, which is a great idea for a story like to save one brother you have to sacrifice the other and kind of biblical as well so uh you know i thought that that was a great way to go into it like basically in the beginning of the film the sheriff bray winstone of this town is caught he finally caught these uh outlaws but the one that really needs to be caught played by danny houston and if anybody knows Danny Houston, uh, son of John Houston, the uh, amazing director and uh, kind of all around badass in his own right, um, plays the older brother who they just can't catch. And so they catch the younger, the youngest brother, and then they catch Guy Pierce's character, who's like the middle brother. And they're like, we're going to keep your young brother and you can leave to Guy Pierce if you go and kill your brother and then you will let your younger brother Mikey out of jail when you come back and prove that you killed him so that's how this movie starts right yeah I mean I fucking love the plot of this film Leah like if you haven't seen it or if you're not familiar with it yeah this the setup to this movie the proposition if you will is is fucking great um and that I, I just remember hearing about that uh that little snippet of what it was when it first came out and I was like, yeah, I'm definitely all, all on board for this movie. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so there are three brothers, they're fucking uh, murderous pieces of shit. And so this proposition that uh, Winston gives them is obviously pretty uh, immoral when you think about it. Um, and that's what I kind of love about this movie. It's like, there are this, it is kind of a revisionist Western where it's like, it, there are no good, good guys. There are no bad guys. Like everybody's compromised. And um, this isn't my words. I think uh, Hillcoat may have said that, but it was, it, he just wanted to set it in a place uh, where morality is a luxury. This is the way he phrased it. And I, that just resonated so well with me. It's like, you just have uh, these characters that are, you know, nobody's clearly the good guy. Nobody's clearly the bad guy. And you have this setting of just endless violence and the futility of it is what uh, keeps the story going, I think. Yeah, and I mean, there's obviously casualties of war, like the uh, the sheriff, Ray Rinstone's uh, character's wife, who kind of gets caught in the crosshairs, you know? she does. She's trying to stand up for what's right. She doesn't want this kid to be, uh, get away with... Um, murdering and rape and of her friend that's why that mikey character the youngest kid is in, in jail so she kind of stands up against her husband at one point when they're going to flog and like whip him 
uh, hundred lashes, uh, you know, very old school, 1800s, hundred lashes out in front of everybody in front of the jail. But the sheriff is like, look, we can't do that. And he has everything against him, even his wife. And then they finally kind of overpower him and they do lash him. But like, you know, they're, he knows when that happens. And if, and if Mikey dies, that they're going to, his brothers are going to come back and kill him and, and his right. family. And that's what I love about because they win. He doesn't care that like the younger youngest guy is going to get lashed. He, he cares that like if he does this, then the uh, guy Pierce and Danny Houston are certainly going to come back and kill him and his wife and everybody he knows. Right, it's, it's like his death warrant if they do it, and that's why. Yeah. And, and his wife, his wife doesn't really understand that. I don't think, you know. Yeah, she's so fucking good in this movie. Even though it, like it's, I mean, it's perfectly like you said. She kind of gets caught in the crosshairs, so she doesn't have a whole lot to do. And yet she kind of does because so she was. Um, one of her best friends was uh, Eliza Hopkins, I think was the name, who was pregnant and was killed at the hands of these brothers uh, shortly before the movie starts, so you never quite see it. I think in one of the scenes, Guy Pierce kind of goes back to the murder scene um, and sees like the uh, wreckage of the house that they burnt down. And so she was... So she has kind of a stake in it too, without without being fully aware of like what's happening with uh, what her husband uh, let the middle brother uh, loose, uh, and obviously she eventually kind of does find out about this in a not in a direct way, but she can basically just sense it, and um, it, it just puts it over the top of her. But I thought she, I mean, yeah. she's great in this. I, what, and what was the last time you saw Punch Drunk Love? Um, I saw Punch Drunk Love. Um, you rewatched probably, probably uh, soon after Philip Seymour Hoffman died. I, I watched okay. it. Uh, so what does that rank 2014. for you? Wow, for PTA. Nobody's, asked, nobody's asked me that before. Um, and I mean, high, low? I don't know. I don't know. In the middle. I mean, look, I love Punch Drunk Love, and I love like so much about it, uh, especially the way it's shot. Um, but it was like, it it was kind of like Paul Thomas Anderson when he does movies like that, that like, I don't know, they just kind of, uh, go off where he wants to take you kind of, Mm -hmm. and, um, it's a good story, but it doesn't really have like, in my opinion, any rhyme or reason. It's kind of how licorice pizza is for me too. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just like a, it's like a story, but there's no, I don't, I don't really feel like there's any moral to it or anything. It's just like a an interesting character study on like you know um two people in love and like in a weird sort of way and the way they behave because of it like right i mean at the end of that movie i don't really feel like you you get anything out of it uh meaning like story-wise like there's no like complete story it just kind of like there's a path of like two people falling in love and let's see how these two characters do it you know i don't know Uh, for sure yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sense. pretty it's pretty high on my ranking for uh, PTA. But again, like I'm a, a huge PTA fan. Like a man can do no wrong, in my opinion. Uh, but Emily yeah, I Watson, kind of disagree lately uh, on that. Well, and I get so, great in that. Yeah, uh, I mean, not to dovetail too much into PTA. But, I mean, the licorice pizza did not hit for me at all. And I've only seen it right. once. And that's the most recent one. That's that's the only movie of his that I wasn't 100% in on like the first time. Um, so I'm, I'm sure I'll rewatch get, it. Yeah, go ahead. 
No, I'm sorry. I mean, but I'm like, it's like when, when Paul Thomas Anderson hits, it's like no movie can beat it. Like Inherent yeah. Vice, uh, I, I, I kind of watched like not as uh, focused as I should. So I got to go back and watch that. And I, of course, love Joaquin Phoenix. But I, yeah, we don't need to get on a whole Paul Thomas Anderson. I just want to say Phantom Thread, fucking loved. And I know a lot of people didn't like it. But then you cannot yeah, beat Boogie Nights. You cannot beat Magnolia. Like those films are the top of the top like probably in the top 10 films of all time in my my opinion you know like the, he is an amazing director but some of them are misses and licorice pizza was that way for me yeah no i mean those four that you mentioned those probably are on the top for me but then punch Drunk love is kind of right below that but again like that's it's still batting uh almost 100 uh but yeah i mean i loved watson in punch Drunk love i mean it is it is a simple love story um and so I definitely will give you that. Um, but I, I mean, I love uh, what how he utilizes Adam Sandler in that movie. Um, Adam Sandler was never my favorite uh, growing up. I was more of a Norm Macdonald guy, but uh, watching his movies, I would, I would see him. They were funny enough. But when a director can uh, channel Adam Sandler's rage, um, primarily this, uh, this movie we're talking about, uh, Punch Drunk Love, and then also... Um, uh, the Meyerowitz stories, uh, when and then obviously uncut gems. So like when a director can channel his rage, I think it's 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 a it's a fucking masterpiece. I love it. Un- uncut gems was a fucking masterpiece, and uh, I liked seeing the Safdie brother in uh, Phantom Thread, and that was nice uh, little parallel. But oh, yeah. I will say, you're right. Like Adam Sandler is great in that film, and in this film that we're talking about today. I don't know, like it's kind of about writing great characters. And I guess that's what I'm saying about Punch Drunk Love. And that's what this film does for me. So in my opinion, Nick Cave in the proposition, like wrote a great screenplay because he knew how to write these characters well. Like they are, mm-hmm. nobody is, nobody has any good saving, redeeming qualities, except like you want to a little bit with Guy Pierce. you know, um, I don't think we're giving anything away with the fact that like, he kind of at some point says enough, you know, enough is enough mm. of this like murderous kind of path that we have. And yeah, you know, no, it, yeah, that's, oh. no, that's a good point. Okay. I mean, we keep on stepping over each other. Go for it. Yeah. I apologize. All I wanted to say was just that. Yeah. That's like, is that a redeeming quality? Is that what, like, what is that? Like, you know, at that point. Again, I think it's uh, like it was either director or Nick Cave who said it. Uh, morality is a luxury, and so the, it's a luxury that these characters don't have. And there's no clear good guy, bad guy in the movie, so it's not really an answer that I personally need while watching it. But yes, um, I think the very end we can like probably leave out in terms of like what happens. But yeah, his quote "enough" uh, is pretty uh, resounding. I think it's pretty heavy, but when the uh, movie closes, when he does kind of get to that point. Um, no, I mean, that's great. I'd love to hear that you uh, you definitely responded to his characters. I mean, yeah, like Dick Cave is just an amazing writer and the writing in his music and the lyrics has always been kind of his driving point. So he's written two novels. Um, one came out uh, in the 80s in The Ass on Angel, which is a Southern Gothic uh, horror uh, novel. 
really dense. Uh, I've I've read it once, and it was uh, it took a couple times to get all the way through it. Uh, but it's pretty uh, pretty intense and and just very uh, full language. Uh, and then his other one is the Death of Bunny Monroe, which is much more approachable and also much better of a novel, I thought. Um, and so it, 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 you can definitely see if you've read those novels and then see this movie, it, it is always about characters that are not clearly defined on morality. That's certainly a huge, huge interest of his. And you can also see it in his movie or in his music, uh, but uh, it's definitely a through line with a lot of his work. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed um, this film after having not seen it. Uh, and I was kind of um, kind of surprised, you know, like uh, films like Western feels and things like that. I obviously love, I love the spaghetti Westerns, Sergio oh. Leone spaghetti Westerns. Um, and also, uh, you know, like genre type like focus genre type films like this like it's not easy for me to like go into westerns or like let's say war films like to just go and say I'm gonna watch this film and enjoy it because like for whatever reason that's not like my main interest but I always 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 enjoy them like so this movie was no different and going into it because it felt very westerny but for all the reasons that we talked about with Nick Cave involved and everything like of course I'm want to give it like my most best attention but like just going into a western in general never make, makes me feel like oh i'm so excited to watch this western but i i but i think to its credit i loved it and didn't really think of it as a western when i was watching it like i just thought about like really good character really good well-written characters that are um and, you know put together in a really good movie with great actors so Oh yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, definitely a big fan of Westerns in general. I think my knowledge is, is decent. I mean, I, th I know there's a bunch uh, like heavy hitters that I have not seen, even though I've seen like most of the prominent ones. Um, and it was largely the Australian setting that has kind of like always stuck with me because it, I mean, it is, it's not, the American history that we're so used to for watching a Western, it's, it's the Australian history, which is one of more of uh, colonialization from the British and partly the Irish. And you kind of see some of that uh, in this. So like, mm -hmm. what, uh, I forget the, I mean, he's like, he's basically the governor, the guy who, uh, who owns the land and is yeah. Ray Winston's boss. Uh, yeah, he's like just like the guy, like the guy that you kind of you know love to hate when he comes on screen. He's just right. like kind of like yeah. So he's essentially a uh, an English um, landowner, and um, and apparently in the 1800s, Australia just basically they just parceled it up and was just divvied up to a lot of uh, English uh, and Irish settlers mostly English. And, and you kind of get into this of where like the racism towards Irish uh, people is pretty infused with a lot of this. And because the three brothers are essentially an Irish, Irish uh, descent yeah. and uh, but being uh, relegated to a second class citizen, which, you know, Irish people have faced quite a bit, especially in European uh, history. And so you see the way that this uh, uh, English uh, landowner is just basically in charge of everything and yet they were literally just 
taking land, essentially stealing it to exploit uh, the natives uh, for their own profit. Uh, and so you kind of, none of this really comes up like overtly in the movie, but it's like, it's just like the foundation for it and the setting for it. So, and again, I think those like, uh, like you said, the, uh, the native state, they're another casualty of this whole story, right? Like they're kind of yeah. like there and then they're sort of like have to choose a side and, you know, even if they don't choose a side, they're getting screwed over for the land, uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, like you, I never really thought of it about like the Irish and the English and the history of this whole um, Australian uh, history that it looks like Nick Cave understands very well and infused it into this film. Uh, even, mm -hmm. I mean, I love this film, not even knowing anything about that. Now I like it even more knowing that like, yeah, there is these moments where the main character will talk about him being Irish and like, hold on, don't you make fun of my, you know, Irish, <laughs> you know. Well, so that's cool. Yeah, hell yeah. John, so the, the amazing John Hurt shows up as a bounty hunter uh, in, in this movie, and he's got a super racist bounty hunter, and he's, uh, he's got a couple good lines uh, diminishing the Irish, uh, and Guy Pearce kind of react to that. I think he says, no finer race has ever peeled a potato. <laughs> yeah. That's Guy a appropriately scene, just, by the way. Yeah, oh, it's so good. He he's just comes on as this, like... Uh, singing prophetic uh, bounty hunter uh, and obviously you know John Hurt's uh, a legend and uh, his, yeah his scenes really just two scenes but like they just are like kind of the cornerstones of like the, the he, he's basically the impetus of, for violence uh, outside of the uh, three brothers every time he shows up somebody's getting hurt uh, either mildly or severely yeah, and he is definitely like a force to be reckoned with on screen. I mean, he just commands attention. And I feel like he's just like looked like a hundred years old his entire career, you know. Like that guy is always yeah. like kind of just like have this great weathered face, uh, gravelly voice, and he, he you know, he stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with like the main bad guy character. Uh you think oh, yeah. he kind of kind of gets taken it and uh he's you're not going to see him again until he shows up a little bit later uh and you know it's a, that's a nice little back and forth between those two characters i really like that i love in his death scene um he's basically reciting poetry as he's dying of a gunshot from the hands of danny houston and they just have like this like intimate moment like talking to each other uh basically understanding that he's about to kill him and but it's like almost uh uh, kind of biblical in a sense, just like of them, like grappling with death and and the way he responds to it. I love it. Yeah, totally. and you're definitely right. He's he's been old. I mean, you look at you watch Alien. Uh, I mean, John Hurt is the original uh, character to have a an alien burst out of his chest, and even that movie, yeah. like he looks like an old guy and yet he's just like barely even a middle-aged worker in that movie uh from the 70s right. and he already looked like uh he's getting ready for old age he's just one of those guys who just always always look kind of old john carpenter kind of falls into this category where it's like yeah even, <laughs> yeah, even sure, as a young yeah. man he looked like an old man and so he just progressively looks more appropriate the older he gets agreed yeah it's interesting with uh john carpenter because i've always felt like you know even when they show like old like stuff from like Halloween, you know, and you're kind of like, hmm, see, always just looked like he was like 75 years old, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. interesting. It basically did just not as great. And so again, it's, it's just a 40 year uh, transition into gray and it just, he's still crushing it.
He's got a new, yeah. uh, I need to check it out. Speaking of Carpenter, he's got a new um, documentary slash concert film about yeah. his live performances. Uh, really? His, yeah. Uh, did you ever get a chance to see him live? No, I mean, I, I recently saw Danny Elfman live and that was like so mm. cool. I can't imagine seeing John Carpenter perform some of his stuff. Oh, live. it was great. I mean, yeah, I got a chance to see him twice. Uh, I mean, so he's put on... Um, put out a couple um, original music albums in the last five, six, seven years. Um, and so the tour was some of that, but then it was about half of that, half of his new music, but then the other half was just him performing all the original themes from like Halloween, Escape from wow. New York, Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing. Uh, well, actually, The Thing is not his quite original score. He helped with it, but just all of his original scores from the movies. And so performing that like on stage, fucking great. And so this, he's got a new documentary slash concert film covering all those tours that he's done. So, cause he's kind That's of become, awesome. unfortunately a, a little bit of a curmudgeon. He just likes playing video games and is no longer interested in making movies. So we're probably never going to get another John Carpenter movie uh again speaking of amber heard that was the star of his last movie that he did which was not that great the ward wait, wait uh, which from, film uh uh his last movie was the ward uh, i think 2009 uh with amber heard and that was just it landed with the fight it wasn't that great and he's just been pretty vocal about like uh directing is a young young man's game and i can't uh, compete with it anymore so man it's, it's not the last that's not the only time I've heard that people saying, you know, directing is a young man's game. I actually mm. met with a guy who was, uh, who worked on um, the Goonies and um, mm. uh, like his last thing he did was on um, the friends uh, series. And I, he was just basically saying like, when I started on like the TV stuff, I just realized like, this is a young man's game or young, young men and women's game. I, I, I'm not mm. like, I'm, I'm out of it. I wonder why that is, you know, I, I don't know. Uh because you're you're accountable for a thousand moving parts that are all going at the same time and that's that's right. a that's a unique skill set in anything especially something creative that uh, is involving millions of dollars so i'm not a director I, but from what i understand that's uh, one of the biggest challenges uh, of it so and not to go off topic too much but you know just kind of like again working in this uh, film industry a little bit when you have people and you know about like wes anderson's or um, Quentin Tarantino or different directors who seem to have they seem to be the nucleus of their films yes. like it, and they've written them they know how they want them to look and you know you just have basically have people around you who are going to make your vision come to life because you have already proven you could make the money you know you've you've proven that people are coming to see the films and that they're like going to be like artistic legendary films for all of time they're going to go right into that category of like you know legendary director not obviously there's a small group of people that have that carte blanche i guess final cut as you would say or like that they are the nucleus of this whole thing and everybody just as like the worker drones around them to make that vision come to life it's it's and i was as i was watching don't worry darling it was almost kind of, sorry i don't want to get off on a tangent but as i was watching don't worry darling i kind of thought about this a little bit more and it, I think that that film was salvageable. Like there's, they could have done a few things that would have made that like film pretty amazing. But there's so many people involved and there's so many people that are like, you know, no, you know, we're the ones putting up the money. So 
you know, it goes this way or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like there's so many moving parts to some of these things. If you don't have that nucleus, that person that like just sees it for like all of the reasons I just stated, I think you can come out and like the public could see something and say like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. How did, how did this, how did they think that this was going to like be great, a great movie? Mm. It's like, well, maybe they didn't. It was just that there was like one person that like pulled the strings right. and said like, this is what's going out. And then like everybody else had to kind of like succumb to that. So anyway. I mean, that's the age old um, challenge of filmmaking as an art. Uh, Cause you uh, ostensibly have the vision of one person but then you have the, you know, uh, until recently with technology, it's a little bit more uh, uh, doable, but like uh, you essentially have a uh, hundred, maybe even a thousand other people having to do the work uh, behind that to make that vision come up. And then you add in the fact that uh, money is absolutely essential, a large amount of money to create it. And so that uh, creates the rigid component of it. And so you end up with more times than not something that looks completely different from what uh, that original vision was. So, I mean, nothing yeah, I'm saying right now is like revelatory at all, but like, it's, it's just really the, uh, that's what's unique about film is it is kind of the conversions of art and commerce. And yeah. being able to put those two together is that's a huge challenge. That's an art form in itself. So I think sometimes too, what people forget um, is that like we, it's just like we, it's just like the same thing with politicians. We control mm. that, you know, like whether or not we go to see the films, whether or not we vote for that politician, like the public, you know, if you're going to have a career and we love you, like, you have to continually do and make good choices on the things that you're going to put out, like, because the public want to see you and perform because you're a performer um, well and in something that they like. Right. So like the choices that actors make and all those kind of things are really important because the public at the end of the day is going to decide whether or not they have a career, you know, going forward. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, in theory, we've had that challenge recently, uh, whether or not uh, somebody uh, gets voted out of office and, and whether or not that uh, <laughs> is real. So. But yes, well, so in theory, go. that's the idea of how uh, democracy works. So. Well, uh, even but that's a whole other conversation. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. But even for the proposition, I mean, like this is this film couldn't have been, uh, I think it said it was like two $2 million to make or something like that. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, in 2005, that would probably be a lot of money, but not like a shitload of money, right? So you probably at that point have people that are like really believe in the script, right? The people that really believe in like making this film because it doesn't feel like a big budget movie. It feels like a bunch of people coming together to make something because there's like really, really important artists connected to it. Hell yeah. Um, where... I mean, let's keep with Nick Cave. Where do you stand on Nick Cave? How often? How I like him. Listen to him? I like him. I don't know enough of him. You know, it's okay. Nick Cave. Is That's like, mostly because I've. I mean, I've brought him up to you multiple times, and I, I know you responded well to the Grinder Band albums that I sent you. Yep. But, uh, yep. I'm just so mo you haven't heard a lot of his uh, Bad Seeds albums. No, and that's the thing is that um, I feel okay. like Nick Cave is like also one of those artists, um, kind of like The Clash was for a while for me. Like, I just kind of don't understand it a ton. Like, and mm. it's not that I don't like it. It's just that I'm kind of like trying to find my way into like really loving 
the artist and um it, it that it's like that with most people that i end up truly loving as artists that's that i don't really get it at first and nick cave has always been one of those ones i just like i don't really get it like i know you love him so much and i'm kind of like yeah why does pat love him so much like i need to find out more which is why i think it's great that we're like talking about this film and that i have seen his name come up so much you know in different films like i'm so aware of him you know that you gotta love somebody that can like write like even like these days seeing like a uh, Trent Reznor's name on a lot of stuff like he's awesome and like I'm not a huge Nine Inch Nails fan but like I love like you said it's like very cinematic like his style is very cinematic and I, I like that I like like you know that somebody can like kind of dive into the film world and also write music on his own how are you going to be the guy from um, Paul Thomas Anderson uh, Johnny uh, Johnny Green what's his name yeah he's fucking amazing and and, and obviously very cinematic yeah he's and he's in radiohead you know same deal no his his scores are great uh i mean yeah speaking of nine inch nails um i'm kind of i was kind of with you there i've always liked them uh for sure uh but i never like rushed to listen to their music uh i mean i've listened to all the nine inch nails albums over the years and certainly all of his scores uh but they closed riot fest uh, and that was actually my favorite performance of the entire weekend, to be honest. Oh, I, cool. was, I was blown away how good they sounded. Um, I think they played Riot Fest in 2017. And I think that's still kind of viewed as like one of the better performances that Riot Fest has really? in a long time. But I was, uh, that was definitely my, my favorite uh, uh, performance um, at Riot Fest because they sounded fucking great. Um, yeah. So not to get too much on ninety channels, but uh, yeah. No, that's fine. I'll let you know. I'll let you know that like none of that matters as soon as you get to see Morrissey out here in LA because those are the best performances you could have, you can ever see. And I'm going to see Morrissey at the Greek coming up in November. So uh, you know, I I I believe that there's other artists out there who who perform well, but you know. Yeah, yeah, but um, I mean, yeah. So like his bad seed albums that he's had like close to 20 and i mean what's what's unusual uh about him is that i mean nick cave's never had like a hit um uh, he's never had like a radio hit over mm-hmm. like 25 albums and that's what kind of always has put him uh it's hard to gauge like his popularity because i don't personally think he's a household name and yet he has an enormous following like every time i've seen him like all of his shows sell out like almost immediately um i mean he really is like a musician's musician it's like he's just very popular among other musicians and has a hugely devoted fan base that's yet, kind of like all your favorite artists are musicians musicians we talk about that a lot that's actually like a reoccurring theme theme within remainders i feel yeah, I mean, this is, I, 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 would, I could definitely uh, get along with that uh, for sure. But um, it is kind of, it's always just put him in a unusual position, I guess, just in terms of like uh, his popularity. Um, but um, I mean, like I said, he's, he's somebody who instantly resonated with me. It's like, I still remember uh, like Boatman's Call from 97 and Murder Ballads from 96. Those are my first two albums I listed on. And still two of my favorite albums that he's ever done. And yet, I mean, he really has never put out a bad album. Wow. And that's what's it's, and that is a rare thing. It's, it's, it's like I was thinking about it the other day. Like one of my favorite bands of all time is The Cure, uh, and The Cure is 
hugely uh there's a huge gap between the best albums that they're <laughs> made and their worst albums there's it's 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 a pretty enormous gap uh because like their best albums like disintegration and pornography are just like so much better than you know some of their more recent albums or uh obscure stuff but like cave is just there's just not a huge gap between his uh best and worst and that's it, it's just his output that is pretty astounding since the 70s um, which, you know, again, that kind of just puts him in this almost godlike status now uh, among his fan base. He, he's become kind of a de facto philosopher on life, death, and art. Uh, I'm reading his new book, uh, Faith, Hope, and Carnage, which is a collection of interviews with um, Sean Hagen, um, the Irish journalist. And um, it's it's just a fucking uh, great uh entryway uh to his current uh place in life and his uh theories on art and and everything in between sounds like he's had a lot of loss in his life as well well yeah i mean so he yeah this is i mean we'll get into we can get into his personal life a little bit more but like so he lost his uh son his young teenage son maybe five six years ago and then he lost another son just last year uh i think to a drug addiction uh, which is something that he battled with uh, in the in the 80s um and so he was always open about like his personal life and and loss and grief and and now it's like in the last couple of years it's just been a floodgate for him uh being candid with uh, his fans and just uh really being personal with uh what that uh what that type of loss is like and for his own life and for still as somebody who wants to create art on a regular basis i think you're you kind of uh mentioned that maybe some of the output and like why he's been working so hard and why you know you see him working like again yeah. shows up in Dahmer over here you know he's got a book out and uh maybe that has to do with a lot of the loss that he's uh experienced or you know recently maybe he's just putting a lot of that into the work no doubt about that yeah i mean he does seem to say i have a new score come up everywhere so he did blonde uh which i have not watched yet which is getting like a lot of fucking hate uh yeah on film, I've seen fil- on film twitter people are like not acting kindly to that movie i haven't watched it yet but i'm going that's, to i mean that, it, so that's yeah. So that's Andrew Dominic. Uh, that's the director of Assassination of Jesse James. Um, ah. And he also did Killing Them Softly with Brad Pitt. Um, Nick Cave and him, the director, Nick, Andrew Dominic, they go back a long time. And so that's kind of their connection with him scoring Blonde. And I'm excited to see it. I just found out that Adrian Brody's playing Arthur Miller. I, I saw that so. too. Perfect casting. <laughs> yeah um i'm interested in watching but yeah it's getting a lot of uh hate from film twitter right now so yeah you know that's that's the other thing is that uh i don't i definitely don't listen to that shit until i see the films myself you know and make my own yeah. opinions because it's just you know who knows where all this shit is coming from but i i have seen a lot of uh hate for that film um but i did i i forgot nick cave did that too so jesus like two huge things that have been on netflix lately uh Dahmer and then you know blonde yeah. Nick yeah. Cave uh, did the score for it. Pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could go on for Nick Cave on Nick Cave forever. 
Um, any other any other scenes kind of stood out with you? I mean, some of my visually some of my favorite scenes are when um, Guy Pierce and Danny Houston are just sitting together. The, um, the sunset and the sunset. There's like two distinct scenes when they're doing this and uh, talking to each other, kind of reconnecting, and then obviously at the end uh, after those events. I mean, those those images are like burned in my head. I still remember seeing those for the first time in this movie, and I've just never forgotten them. Well, those are nice scenes too, because um, Danny Houston in those scenes are definitely getting Guy Pierce and, and like sizing him up. Like, okay, yeah. you know, tell me, tell me who he's dating again. And then like when he's like, you know, later on, be like, oh, Molly, or you know, and he's like yeah. Margaret or whatever it is. And it's like so crazy <laughs> because they're, you know, they don't trust each other. Right. He kind of knows fully why he's there. He's probably there's there's some other like sidebar deal. So even these brothers who are supposed to be blood, like. Are playing each other and those scenes are kind of extra special for that that they're kind of sizing each other up during these like be- like normally beautiful moments to with your brother watching the sunset and the uh, yeah. australian yeah. you know night cover of night when the flies go down and you get that brief uh, reprieve from the the crazy outback uh and yeah. everything that's going to attack you in australia and i mean i definitely think there's a lot of um There's a lot of uh, scenes that are a little hard to watch, um, especially with that 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 vlogging um, scene with the mic with the the younger brother. You get the idea Brutal. that like maybe yeah. that 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 brother is a little more innocent and maybe a product of his brothers and like just kind of you know what he's supposed to be because he's like scared the whole time. Like he's like when you you know you feel like he doesn't. I don't know. Maybe, seems maybe pre- I mean, he seems pretty simple minded and yeah. uh, terrified of most everything. And, and then when you think back, like his entire life is like maybe what, 20? Uh, yeah, young, he's, super he's young. He's like this terrified, simple minded kid, but he's probably been raised by these two rapist murderers. And so I don't know. Yeah, that's just a, a wild dynamic. And obviously that's what leads uh, Guy Pierce to being so protective of him. Right. And yeah, I think that's the thing is that like, Guy Pierce probably feels a little bit responsible for, you know, what's happening to him. And that's why it's so close and, and is willing to kill his older brother to save his younger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so he, Guy Pierce was responsible for breaking the three brothers up. Like he took his little brother away from Danny Houston and they were separated for a while. And it's because Guy Pierce was, um, he didn't want Mikey to be in relation to Danny Houston's character anymore. And so that's kind of what their reconnection was when they uh, finally get back. I, I think that that's movie. why Guy Pierce has sort of got that, you know, is he, when he, I think, you know, the moment that he makes up his mind, what he's going to do is like, yeah. When the younger brother, you know, what happens to him after the lashing, I think he makes up his mind basically. Okay. This is what I got to do now. But I don't think he was sure of that until that, mm. that moment. And that's when he's kind of like, this is all got to stop, you know? Right. So there right. is like a little bit of a redeeming quality of the guy appears character um, for me, at least, even though he's like a scoundrel, just like everybody else. I mean, yeah, it is. But I mean, it's just, it, you're biased towards him by dint of uh, him being the, the good character you're following the most and seeing uh, his reactions the most and, and what he encounters with everything going on. I mean, I love the way the movie kind of like paces, like it goes back between the three brothers and then Captain Stanley and his wife 
and just how it just kind of bounces back and forth in like a seamless way, just understanding of where these characters are come from. And, and like I said, how morality is certainly, uh, uh, it gets squishy and who's actually doing right and wrong. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I know we've been like in and out of uh, a lot of things in this episode, but um, uh, we haven't talked to each other about a lot of stuff, but I think that this was a, a really good film to get back to just because of the, the relevance of Nick Cave right now and what and how much he's doing in like current media and, and you know current entertainment like we mentioned with Blonde and also uh, Dahmer but then also there's this book that he's written that you you're obviously reading right now and also a couple like recent albums that uh not not too distant future or not too distant past that he put out so this guy is uh, one hell of an artist. And uh, this film, The Proposition, for anybody who's not seen it, it's, a, it's an excellent film. And um, maybe a good way to enter into the world of Nick Cave, because you get a lot of him. You get his score, of course, but then you also get the screenplay and how it's written from um, a guy who grew up and was a, uh, born in Australia. Hell yeah. Great summation of it. I mean, like I said at the beginning, he's, he's definitely been one of my favorite uh, artists for a long time now so i would love to hear like if uh, anybody listening just kind of see what like your thoughts are on nick cave and also if anybody's uh, never even really kind of checked out of his albums um, i would definitely recommend uh, uh getting a taste uh, of what his vibes are and kind of his writing style because he's definitely a, an artist not to miss in my opinion and, it, and if, you, if you're not interested in music, he's making pottery with Brad Pitt. So that's at the, at the very <laughs> least, that's pretty interesting. So. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I'm sure we're going to cross paths with Nick Cave again. Um, I, I would love to actually discuss uh, uh, Jesse James. <clears throat> but yeah. I mean, there's so many of his, uh, so much of his work out there that I'm sure we're going to discuss in the future. And then we'll hark back to this episode at that point. Hell yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Hell or High Water is is a high potential for an upcoming episode. We'll see if we get to that one. Uh, just another movie that Nick did the score for and and uh, is a, a definitely an essential of the last couple of years, I think, in my opinion. Awesome. Well, let's make sure that we do not miss much more time because uh, I've, I've missed talking with you. I was really excited going into today that we actually had like a minute here. I know it's a, we're recording this right now on a Sunday night. Uh, usually we like to try to do it during the week, but there's just been no time. And it's actually nice, I think, in my opinion, on a, on a Sunday night, because I'm, I'm winding down from the week. I can kind of reflect on the stuff that I have seen this week and uh, be able to talk to you, you know, without any other agenda. So, you know, let's keep it up. Let's try to get together uh, on the next film, which I don't know what it is yet, but I'm sure we'll figure it out. I was uh, uh, hoping to get a, a hint, but uh, I'll just have to get that midweek, I guess. And I did not oh, come in yet. From me? From me? Yeah. For, is it for my choice? Movie. Yeah, of course it's your choice. Yours is next. Oh, really? Okay. All right. <laughs> I thought we were doing two of yours, so. Oh, no, I'll, no, no. No, no. I, so, I'll, so, I'll, have, I'll have one. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, as acting business manager. Uh, I'm not really the business <laughs> manager. Uh, I'm letting you know that, yes, you, the next pick is yours. So, Gotcha. Yeah. Well, with two months off, you know, uh, in between there, I guess I kind of got lost on what we were doing next. So <laughs> I, now I've got my marching orders business manager and I will uh, pick our next film. 
Well, as per usual, always excited to hear what your next movie is. So I'll be looking forward to that. I've been thinking a lot about uh, women on the influence lately. And uh, that's definitely one that stuck with me ever since watching that. So, Yeah. And La Piscine was fun too. Uh, Also, you know, uh, we have to mention uh, Godard passed away. Um, And so, Mm. you know, at some point maybe we'll, we'll throw breathless in there because I think that that's like one that's worth discussing. Um, And the fact that we lived through a time period where such a great, uh champion of cinema uh was living while we were living and we were able to enjoy uh his his filmography um it we just it's worth mentioning that he passed away and that um you know down the line maybe we'll go into some of his work as well hell yeah definitely looking forward to it you know me you know i like to throw a lot of that old classic cinema and uh you know anything that has to do with something that might be on the criterion channel you know i'm gonna throw in in the mix <laughs> love it uh, all I, right I, I act as the good balance to that which is uh when you said you never know what you're going to get with my picks uh is exactly what i want to hear so that i always yeah, you yeah. always you always keep them guessing That's yeah we know how to keep each other on our on our, on our toes for sure so. beautiful all right man well great i hate to, to to end it but uh obviously we've we've both got to go to sleep at some time you're in you're in the uh central time zone and i'm in pacific but we'll come back next week or the week after whichever one it is and uh discuss some more everybody thank you for listening and uh enjoy this film if you go out to see it and please let us know what you think let us let us know about nick cave let us know about what you're watching and we'd love to discuss it with you too Awesome talking to you. Love this film. Check it out and looking forward to next time we talk. Yes, sir. All right. Well, have a good night, Pat. We'll see you soon. See you, bud. Bye-bye.